Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Idaho hospitals are short-staffed, canceling procedures and diverting patients. The governor has rolled Idaho back to stage two and is deploying the National Guard to help, but is it too little, too late? I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Abner King, CEO of Syringa Hospital in Grangeville, tells us how COVID is affecting rural hospitals like his. Then Idaho Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger Burdick tells us about the court's decision to halt jury trials until January in light of COVID spread. But first, hospitals across the state are buckling under an influx of COVID-19 patients coupled with staff shortages. St. Luke's has announced it is canceling all elective procedures until the end of December, and traveling nurses are increasingly hard to find. This week, Idaho broke even more new records for newly recorded cases, deaths, hospitalizations, and ICU admissions. On Friday, Governor Brad Little announced that he is mobilizing the Idaho National Guard and is rolling Idaho back to stage two. Our healthcare facilities are always rebalancing and shifting resources as needed, but the stress on our healthcare system as a result of COVID spread in our communities is simply not sustainable. Alarmingly, our hospitals are telling us it is only a matter of weeks at the current rate of spread before they must start rationing care. This means they will have to turn away people from the ER or they will be unable to provide the best care for patients with COVID, heart attacks, strokes, and other health issues. Today, I am signing an executive order mobilizing the Idaho National Guard to respond to this emergency and expand capacity within Idaho's medical and long-term care facilities. My executive order calls up 100 guardsmen to increase critical access in healthcare statewide. Today, I'm also signing a statewide public health order rolling Idaho back to stage two of our Idaho rebounds plan with some modifications. What does that mean? It, mean ga it means gatherings of more than 10 people, indoor or outdoor, are prohibited. This does not pertain to religious or political expression. It means at-risk Idahoans should self-isolate. It means all Idahoans are encouraged to telework whenever possible and feasible. It means masks continue to be required at long-term care facilities. It means bars, nightclubs, and restaurants continue to operate, but patrons must be seated other than to enter and exit. This does not mean Idaho's economy is on lockdown. Businesses and churches will remain open under the new statewide public health order. However, all individuals and businesses should continue following recommended protocols to minimize transmission. Once again, Governor Little's order does not include a statewide mask mandate, though he pleaded with Idahoans to wear masks. Rachel Fain, a respiratory therapist at St. Luke's, also reiterated the importance of wearing a mask and being responsible. We experience 
calls daily from outlying facilities, Washington, Oregon, all over Idaho saying, please take our patients. We are at capacity. We don't have staff to take care of our patients. Well, that's where we are now too. And I get a lot of comments about, well, set up a tent and expand the hospital, put disaster ventilators in the tent. Well, frankly, we don't have the staff to run those tents. I've been taking care of COVID patients since March. I have not contracted COVID. I am not going to contract COVID in the hospital. We are very safe there with masks, hand washing, socially distancing. I'm going to contract COVID in the community, unfortunately. Even if these measures do slow the spread, hospitals are already at a crisis point, with multiple facilities needing to divert patients elsewhere in the last week. And that doesn't just affect patients with COVID, nor does it only affect large hospitals with ICUs. In fact, some of the areas with the highest rates of spread are rural counties at the moment. Abner King, CEO of Syringa Hospital in Grangeville, joined me on Thursday to talk about how COVID is affecting his entire facility. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Can you give us an overview of what's going on in Grangeville right now? Certainly, um, with COVID specifically, we are definitely seeing a dramatic increase in the number of positives that are coming through our facility, Syringa Hospital. Um, we see, uh, I would say that the number of positive cases detected um, has more than tripled over the last 30 days. And, uh, but however, although we see a lot of positives, we're not seeing um, uh, not a, too many patients that are sick enough to be admitted to the hospital, but we, we have admitted um, a number of patients over the last uh, two weeks. And uh, I think total to date, we've had about um, a dozen or a little more than a dozen patients uh, admitted to the hospital. There have been uh, around five or six patients that have been sick enough to be transferred out with COVID symptoms. So de definitely a big increase in the number, um, had a really hectic two weeks. This week has um, calmed down a little bit. Uh, the prior two weeks were very challenging for our um, emergency room and our inpatient nursing unit. So give us a picture of your facility for those who don't live in Idaho County. Syringa Hospital doesn't have an ICU, correct? That is correct. We uh, are licensed for 16 beds. Um, two of those beds are for labor and delivery. Um, we have um, been able to um, increase the number of negative pressure rooms we have to handle COVID patients. So we could handle about seven COVID patients in a negative pressure room if we had to. Um, today, for example, we have, uh, I believe, two COVID patients and the capability, if you will, to have five more. But that's kind of a complicated thing to say, too, because our, our rooms are semi-private rooms, two patients to a room. So um, there's a lot of considerations before you start pairing up patients. So it's not always like we have this infinite capacity to add more COVID patients. And we still have to take care of other, uh, the other routine patients that we get. Can you give us an idea of what your positivity rate is right now? Uh, for the last two, week, our two weeks, our positivity rate has been at 28%. If you look at the last two weeks in total, we have uh, uh, seen it go up to about 35%. So we had more than one in three tests coming back positive. 
uh, just a couple weeks ago, but it's down to about 28% right now. And are you experiencing staffing shortages uh, because of nurses or doctors who have to go into quarantine because of exposure? Yes, we have not had a doctor that has to be quarantined yet, but we've had a couple different nurses at different times that um, have through some community exposure. Uh, sometimes it's our kids in school, sometimes it's uh, an event they went to, and we've had to isolate them for the appropriate time, and that does put uh, a big stress on the remaining nurses because we don't have a lot of spare staffing. We're a small hospital. We don't have a big pool of nurses to go to to fill in a gap when we have somebody. So a lot of times when a nurse is out sick, what that means is the, uh, an existing nurse has to pull a double shift uh, or an extra shift uh, that week and, and, and put in the overtime. I wanted to ask you uh, about the patients who do need a higher level of care. You've mentioned having to transfer patients out uh, because you don't have an ICU. As you're watching these regional medical centers, the larger ones fill up, are you concerned that they won't be able to take some of your transfers? I am very concerned about that. And it's not just COVID transfers I'm worried about. Um, we've been fortunate. We, like I mentioned before, there's only been about five or six patients that COVID patients that have been sick enough that need to be transferred out. But, but the other things we do have to transfer out day in and day out, um, like uh, a heart attack or something like that, for instance, just yesterday, we had a case where a patient needed to be um, transferred out and the closest regional medical center about 70 miles away uh, was unable to take them, and it delayed that patient's care. Um, we had to get that patient to, ultimately, Kootenai Health in Coeur d'Alene uh, to get the care they needed. So the closest hospital, regional hospital, refused to take the patient. They didn't have the capacity to do it. This was a patient that came in coding. We had to do chest compressions on this patient for about 35 minutes uh, before we're able to resuscitate them, and yet we still have the difficulty to place them because the other hospitals are filling up. You know, knowing that all of these regions and all of these medical centers are interconnected like that, I'm watching the cases go up statewide. Um, and I know that hospitalizations are often a lagging indicator when it comes to COVID, that you have a rise in cases and then about two weeks later you have a rise in hospitalizations. Is there anything that your facility is doing right now to prepare for the coming weeks in anticipation of that rise in hospitalizations that you might see? Well, we've uh, put an order in for travel nurses, but we haven't had any available answers to that yet. So we, we uh, I guess everybody's looking for travel nurses right now across the country. Um, so that's one thing we've done. Uh, we have incident command meetings twice a week. We look at our um, staffing, we look at our uh, inventory, we look at things and we, and we just try to be uh, a half a step ahead of what's coming down the line. So again, we have limited staffing, limited nurses um, to fill the slots. Um, a big thing that we constantly do is try to keep our staff well, try to keep them from being quarantined. We uh, screen everybody that comes in the facility, for instance. Visitors and staff, every staff gets screened when they come into, the, come into work. Um, so that's the best thing we can do um, is try to prep, prepare for that. Um, again, we keep communications going with uh, other hospitals and talk about how we might be able to 
transfer a patient upstream uh, to other routine or not routine um, normal lines, right? I, I want to ask you about the community as a whole. How seriously are your neighbors in Grangeville taking the situation? Not as seriously as I wish they would. Um, mask wearing uh, is, uh, is, could be very effective, but um, by and large, um, people aren't wearing masks as much as, as, as I think they should. Um, we're, we're requiring every staff and uh, patient, at, or sorry, staff and visitor in the hospital to wear masks. Um, and anybody involved in direct patient care will, will be wearing a mask all the time. Um, anyone, unless you can appropriately socially isolate, like I am in my office right now, you, you will be wearing a mask if you're on our premises because we want to protect our staff and we want to protect our patients and we want to protect our visitors. Um, the community at large, I think, um, is coming along. I'm seeing more mask wearing um, this week than I did last week, but um, it's still not very commonplace. So if you were governor for a day, what actions would you take? I would listen to the science. I would listen to the research that's out there, the proven research. We are still learning a lot about COVID, but we have learned a lot about what we can do to prevent, uh, to prevent the spread of the disease. Slow it down. That's all we need to do. Um, you know, letting it run its course, the challenge is going to be hospitals like ours and even the big major hospitals having the capacity to take these patients in and, and, uh, and care for them and not say no to anybody. Um, so the challenge is to, if I was governor for a day, I would get the message across that we all have to do our part. And um, for a period of time, we have to socially distance and we have to... Um, you know, wear masks to the extent that we uh, can, you know, make this effective to um, minimize the spread of COVID to whatever degree we can. All right, Abner King, thank you so much for your time. All right, you're welcome. Hospitals aren't the only systems struggling under the weight of COVID. On Thursday, the Boise School District voted to move all students to virtual learning after severe staff shortages meant that not all classes have substitute teachers. As of Thursday, more than 1,500 Boise students and staff were in quarantine. And earlier this week, the Idaho Supreme Court announced a pause on jury trials statewide because of COVID spread throughout the state. On Thursday, I spoke to outgoing Chief Justice Roger Burdick about that decision. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you walk us through the order that you issued this week? We started uh, issuing orders very quickly after the pandemic started in April. And like any other agency, business, or other organization, we have had a series of orders trying to uh, balance the safety of our citizenry with the pandemic risks. And as a result, the latest was, I believe, last Monday, where we called all jury trials off until uh, January 4th of 2021. It was basically, we had previously done this at the beginning of the pandemic uh, because we just didn't know how we were going to do all of these things. We didn't have the Zoom capability. We didn't uh, have in some of our courthouses that are old or ancient 
or um, even a decade old don't have room to practice social distancing, et cetera. So we called off jury trials for a period of time. Then we uh, worked hard to come up with uh, some sort of standard where we felt it was safe to have people come into uh, courthouses to have jury trials. Uh, as a result, uh, since the huge outbreak in the last four to six weeks, uh, we have again halted all jury trials. Uh, it's a complex issue to present a jury trial. Number one, the people that are coming there are being ordered there. It's not like going into your grocery store where you have a choice. Uh, then we have the physical constraints of our of our older courthouses, even our newer courthouses, because you've got to bring in a group of 50 to 60, 70, 80 people who are then called down to the 12 who will hear the case. And that takes a significant amount of space, uh, people in and out. Um, and um, we just don't wish to risk court personnel, i.e. clerks, uh, as well as the jurors themselves. So we've called off jury trials again until January 4th. Can you tell me about the metrics that you use to decide that, you know, it's not just about the high number of cases, but it just wasn't safe to do this right now in, in most of these counties? Well, and I, I have to refer to my notes because of the metrics. First of all, how did we come up with them? Uh, we talked with the Department of Health and Welfare, who we are <clears throat> working with uh, uh, on the new behavioral health initiative, the governor, the legislature, and the department, and ourselves. And as such, we've got a great relationship with Director Jepson. In addition, we brought in uh, the National Center for State Courts, had information that they were putting out on a regular basis, and we brought in Dr. Pate who uh, we talked to for about an hour, and then the court continued to meet. I think we probably put in three or four more hours on a decision uh, as to how we would go about that. Um, in the new order, uh, we just held that the seven-day average, or the September 10th order, the seven-day average had to be less than uh, 25 new daily cases per 100,000 population. The September order also allowed a jury trial if it to be canceled if the county had a moving average 14 to 24 daily cases per 100,000, as well as an upward or increasing 14-day trend. Now, the important concept here is since that has that rule took place, uh, the statewide moving average incident rate has increased to 57.9. Uh, that is a 335% increase from September 13th to uh, November 8th. Additionally, uh, when we first started using that uh, standard, uh, there were about 91% of the counties that could hold a jury trial. Uh, on uh, November 5th, that was down to 5%. In other words, basically two counties, based on that metric, could hold a jury trial. Uh, it was futile to try to risk everyone's uh, health in that regard. 
How confident are you that it's going to be at that safe case rate by January 4th? We will, of course, talk to the experts um, uh, throughout the state. We will talk to our administrative district judges. Um, and uh, before we make that decision, personally, I just think it will be a county-by-county county analysis. In fact, that's one of the problems that we faced with this. Every Thursday, we would review the metric for trials on Mondays. Well, lawyers would come in, they'd get their witnesses ready. That metric would say, you can't have a jury trial, cancel it. There was a lot of stress on our court personnel, our clerks, our bailiffs, uh, the lawyers, participants. And as a result, uh, uh, another reason for canceling uh, all jury trials. But do I personally think that we will be able to hold uh, unmitigated jury trials in January? No. At best, we can go back to our September 10th uh, order and um, continue to use those uh, standards uh, for a case-by-case analysis throughout the state based on county um, infection rates. You know, pre-COVID, the most recent numbers that I found showed that about two-thirds of detainees were there, uh, were pretrial detainees. Do we have any idea how many people who are currently incarcerated are awaiting trial who are going to be uh, detained through the holidays without any hope of getting a jury trial before January? Uh, <clears throat> Another complex answer. Um, I think I have to set a background. When we've, the nation is already examining pretrial detention of individuals who are presumed innocent. Yes, there's been probable cause that they committed a crime, but they're still presumed innocent. Uh, historically, we have used cash bail in that regard. Um, nationally, courts are and legislatures are looking at that as to whether it's too expensive as well as too much of an impact on certain areas of our citizenry. Come to Idaho, uh, one of the things that we have done uh, immediately upon the uh, COVID pandemic was we encouraged our judges to look at pretrial techniques. We encouraged them to use every technique possible that could be um, home monitoring, it could be ankle bracelets, it could be a real analysis of what the real risk of this individual was out in the community. Uh, we were criticized in that regard. I have uh, by some, and that's fine. But uh, we tried to encourage and educate our judges to work on that reduction. Has it been successful? Not 100%. I think we have shown improvement. But uh, we are we are vitally aware of the danger uh, to uh, not only the persons who are presumed innocent, but also those that have been convicted. I just saw a study in Texas, I believe, where it is alleged that 80% of the people who died of COVID uh, disease while they were incarcerated had not been convicted yet. Uh, we have a couple of things happening. Number one, jury trials. They are taking place. 
Number two, that packs up the, the jail. You use pretrial release mechanisms, but if you can't have a jury trial at some point, uh, you're just going to have to keep packing people in there for protection of society. And uh, it is a one of those things that the pandemic has basically given us no easy choice, no easy fix. And, and understanding that this isn't an Idaho-specific problem, is there uh, an issue here with the defendant's right to a speedy and public trial if these jury trials keep getting delayed? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Number one, uh, there, are, there are huge... When I was with the water court, we would have a sub-basin come in, 50,000 cases, and we'd have to bring it through the court. Well, we analogize that to the to the um, donkey and the snake, just this huge thing coming through the system. And our judges are vitally aware of it. They are very concerned about this, this uh, problem of the trials being backed up. I think I talked to a, a fairly rural judge who had 160 jury trials to take care of when the pandemic is somewhat under control. Um, it, it's going to be a huge problem. It is a huge problem for uh, uh, the defendants, the courts, everyone. Now, having said that, um, there is a statutory right to a uh, speedy trial, and the exception to it is, in fact, a pandemic. It's in the Idaho statutes. Then there is a constitutional analysis, both federal and state, as concerns the right to a speedy trial. And some of the case law seems to suggest that around a year that may kick in. Um, but uh, again, another situation that uh, there's no easy fix. It is a complex system. Uh, we will work through it. So yes, there is concern. One last question. You're entering your final weeks of this term as Chief <laughs> Justice. You have... Any, first of all, congratulations. And second of all, do you have any advice for the incoming Chief Justice, Richard Bevan? Again, a little background. When I was district judge in Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, Justice Bevan was the prosecutor who appeared in front of me every day. Uh, as I indicated, he is a man of significant uh, he has an internal vision of excellence that very few people have, it seems to me, uh, both professionally and personally. Uh, he is not going to be Roger Burdick, thank God. But on the other hand, uh, he, will, he will do what is right for the court. He will support the court. He will be a, a remarkable spokesman for the court. I can't imagine that I could give him any guidance because I've seen him in the past, and then I've seen him as his uh, work has come to us because he was a district judge in Twin Falls, followed me on the bench in that regard. And uh, a remarkable district judge, he will be a remarkable chief justice. Um, and I would be, uh, I don't have enough arrogance to tell Rich Bevan to do anything, quite frankly. He's a great guy, you'll love him. <laughs> Well, Chief Justice Roger Burdick, thank you so much for your time. Can do, and thank you. Appreciate what you do. 
for my full conversation with Chief Justice Burdick, including information on how the halt on jury trials may affect people facing evictions. Make sure you subscribe to the Idaho Reports podcast. You'll find our podcast on all major podcast platforms. For daily updates on COVID-19 numbers throughout the state, make sure you subscribe to Idaho Reports on social media. Thanks so much for watching, and we'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.